souvenirs and slideshow, and we've got bigger fish to fry. It seemed our esteemed physician has disappeared. Joel's gone, A-W-O-L. Dr. Fleischman. He paddled up the Chenega here to deliver a baby two weeks ago, and I haven't heard from him since. And he refuses to answer radio transmissions. I hope he's not dead. You're gonna wish he was if I get my hands on him. There's uh, confirmed word that a physician matching Fleischman's description has moved in with uh, a settlement of natives right in here. I hope you've still got your kit packed because you're gonna go drag him back. Uh, where exactly is that I'm going, Maurice? That's a good question. It's not on any map. The natives call it Mononosh. Mononosh. Charles, have you seen the film Apocalypse Now? I want to. I really want to watch it. I heard you've told me so many great things about it and uh, also so many terrible things that happened on the set of it. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it's got uh, Martin Sheen in it. It's got... Chad uh, Bartlett. <laughs> Al Pacino's not in it, is he? No, no, no. Okay, I don't know why Harrison I thought he would Ford be Harrison Ford is in a, in a small, I think in just like a couple scenes or one small scene. Lots of great talents there. Uh, but do you do you know like the premise, the plot of that film? Yeah, yeah. So not unlike what's happening here with uh, yeah. Maurice is basically like, Ed, have you ever seen Apocalypse Now? You need to get Joel. You need to get him I out thought, of I thought this episode was going to be like, an adv- like, like you described, <laughs> like an adventure episode. I was like, ah, oh, like this is what the the kids today called Pog. Like this is gonna be amazing, <laughs> like an action adventure, like uh, whitewater rafting or something. Yeah, I thought it was gonna go. It was gonna be like Ed with like a couple townsfolk, and they're gonna make their way through this river, reading maps, trying to like see the trail that Joel left behind to see if they could locate him and save him. Pretty much, just uh, pretty much just happens in the first like opening gambit like it all that's all that you really see of the canoeing um but it is one of the longer opening gambits i think i clocked it at like a couple minutes but you know we'll get into that first i should say this is the northern overexposure podcast my name is lee and i'm joined by my co-host charles that's right we're here to discuss the 1990 cbs television sitcom series northern exposure i have never seen the show before i'm seeing it with fresh eyes for the first time right here But Lee has seen it multiple times except for last season. Yeah, I've just seen the the sixth, the final season. I've only seen it once. Though the last episode, uh, you know, Joel proposes to Maggie. I definitely remember that. I also remember this episode, but what a a quick, like, pivot. You know, like, Joel and Maggie are about to get married, and then the very next episode, Joel goes upriver, as we hear in this soundbite. Yeah, it's it's quite a stark shift. I wonder, like, were the writers just thinking, "Oh, what have we done? We we finally like, you know, the will they won't they is is uh, no longer. It's just they will, you know. So they so they're like, okay, cancel that, cancel that. Joel goes up river. Yeah, there was a whole lot of just a lot of head scratchers in this episode, and I, I said for this season I would try to give my thoughts. Uh, at the top of the episode, and yeah. we would just work our way down, try to arrive at my conclusion right here. So for this episode, it's one of those rare cases where I actually really like the subtext that is going on with here. I think the name of the game for this entire episode is home. And then the thing beneath that is concrete. I think those Ooh, two play okay, yeah. very, very pivotal role. And the way that it's incorporated is actually really amazing. I, I really like it. 
But I, I also understand that there's way too much being crammed in here. And there's also just not enough that's going with like what the characters actually are. Yeah. And also, like you mentioned, it was like we just had an episode where they said they were going to get married. And then we just we just took that away. I think that in a perfect world, if you were constructing this, and I, I guess it's just coming from my perspective. I think you have a lead up to this episode. Instead yeah. of dropping us in medias res, we would have an entire lead up seeing Maggie's thought process of how she thought that her and Joel couldn't continue traveling down this path, making a home for each other. But instead, we just got this episode immediately after the airplane. Yeah. <laughs> and I yeah. felt that there's too much of a disconnect. I'm sorry, what were you going to say? No, I was just going to say, yeah, that's true. We don't get a whole lot of Maggie's point of view. It's kind of a surprise that catches us off guard by the end of this episode when they do kind of split up. But um, yeah, I mean, I actually, I really did like the sort of narrative frame of the flashbacks here, but I I'm maybe you agree here. It's like, it is just too quick to go from the proposal on the airplane to this episode. I thought it was a cool episode, but it's just so fast going from full upright position to upriver. Literally the start of this episode is Joel is gone upriver. Ed rushes up to find him and he's like, let me tell you about a week that changed my life, Ed. And it's just, it, yeah, it, it's been one week. <laughs> <laughs> it's been one week. Yeah. Um, 1990, is it 1992? <laughs> I don't, Wait, are you talking about this show or the song? The BNL song? No, I think it's actually later 90s. Let me is see. Really? You're talking about the BNL song. Yeah. 1998. 1998. All right. Yeah. So after this, okay. They can't, <laughs> yeah. even, can't even say they were trying to reference that. <laughs> but yeah, before we really get into it, why don't you talk to me about who the writer and the directors were for this episode? All right. So the episode Upriver, the eighth episode in season six, directed by Michael Fresco. He did, uh, I'm just going to list all his credits in Northern Exposure, Dateline, Sicily, Thanksgiving, Old Tree, Mystery of the Old Curio Shop, Rosebud, Mr. Sandman, Hello, I Love You, I Feel the Earth Move, and Dinner at 7.30, which was the premiere episode this season. So he worked a lot in season five, but even before then, he gave us a lot of great episodes. Mm -hmm. And we got the writers, Diane Frolov, Andrew Schneider. Of course, uh, we recognize their names, uh, I guess, like executive producers of this show. Oh, no, no, no. David Chase is the executive producer. But they're also, um, I don't exactly remember their title, but they're producers on the show as well. Diane Frolov and Andrew Schneider were executive producers with David Chase from 94 to 95. Um, air date, November 14th, 1994. Yeah, I mean, there is just a lot to dive into here. So maybe we go with just quickly talking about that opening soundbite, that opening scene. I mean, you heard most of it there, but I did just want to mention it kind of opens with like Maurice is already kind of like rushing about and Ed enters Maurice's house. So he's been summoned, uh, something, there's just such urgency in the, the movement of the characters in this scene. Turns out Ed has been gone for like a couple weeks. He was at the Banff, film festival you see like he he brings a t-shirt as a souvenir um it's kind of hard to read on the blu-ray but later they do mention it was the banff film festival and i thought that might have stood for something like b-a-n-f-f as in ff for film festival but i think it's referencing a place called banff 
which is uh, in uh, Alberta. And if you Google it, you see beautiful vistas of mountains, just like that T-shirt that he's holding. Yeah, I mean, you heard it in the soundbite. Joel has gone A-W-O-L. And uh, Maurice orders Ed to go upriver and try to find this mysterious Mennonash, which is not on a map anywhere. Uh, try to find Joel and bring him back. Yeah, this is... Like, it ends with Ed going up the river and finding Joel, right? Like, he meets, mm-hmm. like, a man, like, a stranger, and then Joel comes out and he's like, hey, he meets a He meets a guy who who Ed can't even comprehend the language. It's so, right. like, indigenous or it's so, like, tucked away. Um, but you're right. Joel, Joel pops up. I thought this was, like, a parody for, like, a couple seconds. I was like, what is happening here? Because <laughs> it's actually, I mean, if you yeah. play it straight, it's ridiculous. You're telling me that in one week... <laughs> Joel simulated into this culture. He learned the language, their ways, yeah. their rituals. It's like absolutely not. I'm like, of course not. Yeah, it's. Uh, I like. The, I like how they. I guess the the uh, the screenwriters' maybe objective here is to have a shocking opening and then try to like, you know, hook you with that and tell the story that really, you know, rocked Joel's world. I guess the past week. Um, but yeah, it, it, it is would, it would make, it would make more sense if it was like a couple months than I would yeah, buy yeah. it. This is like one, it's like, dude, I've had milk that like lasts longer than this. <laughs> like, come on. <laughs> but I love that. Um, just the way Joel says, hello, Ed. And I actually forgot how he says it, but it's not, it's not, it says it in such a peculiar, almost like an enlightened tone of voice. Hello, Ed. Lots of really interesting line readings that uh, Rob Morrow gives in this episode that I like, actually. Yeah, so that's going to be the first, arguably the major plot line of this episode. But we have two other ones, one dealing with Chris and one dealing with Ruthann. Which one should we travel on? Well, it was interesting when you mentioned, like, I, I liked what you were talking about. Some of the themes you recognized here is home and then the concrete under the home. And I know that I can see that connecting to Chris's storyline. But I don't know, do you want to start there or do you want to pick it from Ruthann and save Joel last? We can go into Chris. Okay. Uh, Let's find out where he appears. Yeah, what is the first scene with Chris? I think it's just, it starts with like the beginning of his plot line being him remodeling his trailer. So he's outside his trailer and he's got sort of a contractor there. I forgot, I think his name is Willie. And uh, he's got plans to build an enclosed patio outside of his place. Oh, I should mention that this is all being narrated by Joel. Well, he does say to Ed that, you know, some of these things I experienced and some things I heard secondhand. So, you know, he's obviously in parts of these scenes because this is a flashback, Joel talking about that week that shaped his life. So... I don't know, you know, he's not obviously not in the scene with Chris here, but he's still telling this part of the story. And uh, if, sorry, just I know we're supposed to get to Chris, but I was just thinking, um, do you remember that season of the newsroom that was like half of it was like all flashback or whatever? Do you know what I'm talking about? It was like the one where they did like... Oh, the Genoa story? I think so, yeah. I don't really remember what the yeah. substance of it was. I just remember that Aaron Sorkin like wrote himself into a corner and they had to like pause the release of the show for like a couple weeks to rewrite. Yeah, that's the one where HBO was really kind enough to let him rewrite like large portions of the script again. From my recollection, I, I think it was like, it was like a botched story that they did 
And they were trying to work backwards between like the meetings with the lawyers in the present That's right. and them investigating the story in the past. And it kept alternating between multiple perspectives because the lawyers would bring in like a new, mm. the, the lawyers would bring in like another cast member to interview and then like everything would get like rewinded and stuff like that. I think uh, Arrested Development also did, it wasn't that like in the fourth oh. season or something, is it, they did like a narrative. And that's, and that's because of like, that. it's like similar reasons as well in that like, it, it's not like the screenwriter was stuck writing, but um, the cast couldn't all get together oh, okay. to film. So they had to segment it like that. Interesting. I think it might have been neat if we had like a run of episodes where Joel's narrating because we know that Joel is like leaving the show and spoiler alert, Charles, this is not the last episode that we see Joel. I mean, I imagine he's not going to be in a couple episodes, but I know the last episode with Joel. This is not it yet. But um, yeah, I imagine like maybe for shooting purposes, if there's like contract disputes and Joel, you know, Rob Morrow doesn't want to come to set or whatever it is, there could be a sort of framing device where we like hear this all through flashback. But I mean, I've just described all the reasons why that could be a problem, like the newsroom, um, arrested development. But um, sorry, that was just thinking about this scene with Chris. I know Joel is sort of narrating it. it just made me think about that. Right. So that brings us back to Chris and his renovation at his little trailer. Uh, two things to note is that he says that he's paying this with inheritance money that he received. Mm -hmm. And two, he said that he wasn't a kid anymore. He needed his own place to like stretch his legs and everything. There's an emphasis on the idea that he's growing up, quote unquote, receiving inheritance. Oh, I like that. He is no longer a kid. He's got to have this enclosed patio with all of the adult fixtures that you think about when, well, when you're an adult. Like putting in a sink, putting in a fridge, putting in a new water line. These aren't conversations you have with kids. Like when you're building like a clubhouse <laughs> as a kid, kids probably going to be like, is it going to have like a dope like water cannon or something? Yeah, like, is it going to have like Gatling a dope gun? water yeah. cannon? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, no, that's that's a good thing to point out. I didn't I didn't think of it in that manner. Um, I just would like to add that uh, Chris is unconcerned about the costs. You know, he's ready for big major renovations. And um, he's he's putting a lot of not only the cost, but just it's going to be a lot of work, like a lot of uh, construction happening to the patio area, to his house, because they have to like tap into the water line and like run another electrical box, yada, yada. So it's going to be a major endeavor. Yeah. So Chris is in a transitive period between his homes where he is. Not in his old place, but he's not quite settled into his new one either. So sort of stuck in limbo is what I would say is happening to Chris right now. Yeah. I mean, we can see it in the next scene. We start to understand uh, Chris is not at K-Bear. He's at home still. Maurice comes to him to basically say, hey, you got to show up. Like people, this is like the drive time hour. People want to hear you on the radio. And Chris is like, I can't even like live in my home right now. It's completely like in disrepair. There's construction everywhere. The contractor never showed up today. Basically, Maurice is putting it together. He's like, oh, I see. Like he finishes a job halfway, leaves you hanging. That's what contractors do. Did you like set up a term or like, you know, a deadline? Uh, Did you have any sort of contract written up or something like that? And Chris is realizing you know, his mistakes, maybe he trusted this guy with too much, or maybe he just didn't even realize how big of an operation this would be. He ends up going to take refuge at the brick, but I didn't know if you wanted to talk about any of this 
what's happening in this scene before we move there? Uh, no, I just want to say that that's generally your experience with contractors I've been fighting is that they <laughs> will. For, I, I, I don't want to throw them underneath the bus because maybe there's a good reason. I understand that they schedule a lot of things. So like they'll work on some stuff and then they'll go to another person's house and then finish up that stuff because maybe it required time for things to dry or you gotta, settle out. Yeah. You, yeah. You have to kind of like balance a lot of different projects and it never cleanly lines up maybe. It never, yeah. But then like, I don't know. I, was, I have a friend <laughs> who's, um, yeah, his house is like, it, it was being renovated for like, Pre-COVID, like pre-COVID. Oh my God. And it is still in some shape or manner still being worked on. Like they were able to move into the house last year, but like mm-hmm. it was just like a nightmare to deal with on logistics. Like the contractors were just, they just didn't want to do it. They were just like, yeah, I'm just not, I'm not doing it. No bueno. Um, well, as I said, Chris now has just taken refuge at the brick because home is not home anymore. It's just kind of, destroyed, half finished, you know, it's incomplete. And, um, Holling's like, well, Chris, uh, can we seat you at the bar? Cause I could really use this table. Um, Willie comes into the brick. Now the contractor enters and Chris, uh, gives him a piece of his mind. And he's like, look, man, you can't leave me hanging like that. Willie has, uh, an excuse that his, um, what is it? The transmission on his truck went out uh, he had to go get it repaired, cost him a lot of money, a lot of time. But Chris is like, okay, well, you got to come back and finish up. And he's like, oh, sure thing, sure thing, Chris. So tomorrow morning, Willie gets a second chance. Right. The next scene, we have Chris showing up to his house where Willie is working on the stuff. He's got a new water line going through it. He's got, uh, I think, like a little bit of like groundwork settled out in front of the trailer as well. But it turns out that Willie didn't really do like the best of job that he could mm-hmm. do. He didn't cap off one of the line, like the pipes inside the trailer. So yeah, one caused, thing like, a that flood. like I just thought it was interesting. Chris was like, "Willie, why did you like run the pipe through the side of the trailer? Couldn't you have like gone underneath?" Mm-hmm. And it's like, one, if Chris like has a better concept of what the work should be done, that's not speaking well for Willie. But I guess on the other side of the coin too would be like. Maybe they should have communicated this better. Because if Chris is like, oh, I want I want the pipe to come underneath the trailer, not the side. I mean, I guess you could have communicated that. But still, it doesn't look that great the way that Willie did it. And um, sorry, I had cut you off. But you were saying that they, I yeah, forgot that Willie forgot to cap off something. So when he turns the water on, it floods Chris's trailer. Right, right. I think that one of the things of adulthood that I find is realizing that a contractor <laughs> will not always 100% fix your problems because mm-hmm. when you're, when you're, I don't know, like just like less experienced, I guess you believe in the person that you hired that they're going to do it to their best of their ability and everything is going to be fixed. Yes, but it's based <laughs> on who you hire because mm-hmm. you can definitely hire people that just like, they were just, they're regular, regular person. It's like mm-hmm. a regular handyman and they come in there Maybe that they actually messed up and they're not actually going to fix your thing. You always presume that when you pay for goods and or services, it's going to come out exactly what you think it is. But for these particular types of things, I've had my own, like a lot of instances where like contractors just really messed up. Like they like blew out the electrical line (laughs) and like in my house or they just didn't paint something very well. 
Just yeah. like small yeah. little things <laughs> that like you got to realize that like they're not going to always do everything perfect to your dimensions. There is going to be many contractors <laughs> that will mess up. This is triggering you, Charles. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's like there's a lot of different ways to do the job. And then like that also means there's a lot of cheap and fast ways to do the job. So like, you know, it depends. Like, do you, what do you need? Like, do you need something to be like mocked up real fast or do you want like very specific? I mean, you may not even know what you want until you realize what you get is not what you want. Uh, which is which is what Chris is realizing here. Um, he's <laughs> his place is a wreck. It's soaking wet. The the next scene is just he's still there and he's like you know picking up soaking blankets. His the carpet flooring on his trailer is all messed up. The deck is still just like a frame basically. He opens up his refrigerator inside and throws out some like spoiled food because there's no electricity. Mm. Um, but there is a can of warm Budweiser. That he takes outside, pops open, and starts to drink, and he uh, he lets out a primal scream out into nature for some sort of catharsis. Charles, are you familiar with primal scream therapy? Yeah, that's the idea that like if you're just troubled by something, you scream at the top of your lungs, right? It, it, yeah. Is that the general gist of it? It is. It was. Uh, I was curious about this because I'd heard about it. There's like I can't remember who now, but there are quite a few like musicians. Maybe it was like John Lennon and some more um, around that time, like in the '60s, '70s, maybe, who were like either very interested in this form of therapy, or they knew like the one of the like they knew a, a leader in the field or something. Like I, I can't remember the the person's name who was like a big proponent for a primal scream therapy. Yeah, it just seems like an interesting form of therapy. Uh, however, I think it has mostly been disproven or proven to be um, actually detrimental. So it's like not good for you. And it could be, um, it, it could promote bad feelings, bad things in your, uh, in your psyche. Oh, wow. I feel like that's one of those things that like goes in and out, kind of like diet to a degree. Right. It was sort of like a fad or it's, it's, seen now as like a fad mm -hmm. um, or was like a fad. But I don't know. I think people still do it today. I'm not sure. No, no, definitely. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Chris is doing it. Uh, I, I've always found that a little interesting. But to continue with Chris, what's he up to next? Yeah, this is where Joel shows up because this happens off screen. But presumably, Joel knows that something is bothering Chris to the point in which he's going to need some form of medication. I, I believe it's Xanax right. is what he's looking for, but mm -hmm. he no longer needs it. Joel shows up to Chris's trailer. Much more work has been progressed. We got footsteps that are leading up to that little uh, exterior that they've been building. There's towels that are drying outside. Looks like everything's turning out pretty well right here. And Chris tries to explain to Joel the, like, the fundamentals of a house. Well, I think we got a soundbite for it, actually. Yeah, let's take a listen. Thing is, Joe, what's a house? It's a metaphor, right, for the mind. Isn't that what it's all about? You gotta tear down the old before you can build the new. You, know, you gotta lose your mind before you can find it. Universe whacked my house. It was really whacking my mind. Let go. Give up, man. Throw out all those old plans and... Stick your face in the here and now. Whether this works out or doesn't, I'm a free man. 
Yeah, so Chris establishes this metaphor between having a home and having that be where your mind is at, where you're most safe. Mm. And when you tear it down and build a new one right there, you just got to go with the flow right there. You just got to go, you just got to move forward and just pray for the best right there. And the thing that really ties us all together is that Willie tells Chris and Joel at the end that the footsteps are finished Mm -hmm. and they go outside and go look at it. The concrete is just about to solidify. And that's when both of them put their hands against it to leave their mark. But the really neat thing about this is the solidification of the concrete. The home is no longer in disarray. Mm -hmm. It's finally coming together. The foundation is now being set. Mm -hmm. And that is a very important metaphor for the entire episode. I was actually looking into concrete. Mm -hmm. I was just wanting to understand (laughs) it more. Because I didn't realize that um, cement and concrete are actually two different things. Yeah, what is the difference between the two? Yeah, so a cement is a binder. It's a chemical substance used for construction that sets, hardens, and adheres to other materials to bind them together. Cement is seldom used on its own, but it binds to sand and gravel together. So when you mix it with that stuff, it produces concrete. Mm. Uh, I also knew of like this little piece of trivia that I don't know how true it is in terms of its practical purpose. The scientific purpose, it definitely works. And what I mean by this is that if you pour uh, some sugar into concrete that's still trying to settle, Mm -hmm. It will actually disrupt the entire process. Oh, cool. And it will prolong (laughs) the concrete. And I'm not even going to try to bother to explain the chemical reactions between them. Mm -hmm. But basically, a little bit of sugar, and it's going to make the concrete still be a slurry. And apparently, this is what protesters would do, like old school ones. (laughs) They would pour sugar into concrete to stop it from being, you know, from settling out Mm -hmm. so that, the building could never be built. Wow. But I think <laughs> it eventually still gets built, though. It doesn't permanently stop the process. Yeah. And in fact, sometimes it's even done purposefully because they need to transport the slurry. Okay, yeah. So they just add sugar to it so it keeps being in that slurry form longer. Yeah, you see those, like, cement mixer trucks or whatever that are um, spinning? They kind of yeah, tumble. Yeah, yeah. Throw some sugar in there. yeah i love that last little image of them putting their hands in the concrete and i also liked the thought process i don't know if this is 100 percent uh true all of the time but it is an interesting way of thinking where chris says uh you have to tear down the old before you can build the new and that applies to your mind as well like your state of mind you have to for chris the universe had to i think he even says the universe like uh, threw me a fastball, like really like broke me down. And uh, I needed that in order to build my house anew and also build my frame of mind. Right. Concrete's got to settle. Mm-hmm. It's got to wait for that. Is that the end of Chris's storyline? I'm almost positive that it is. Yeah. Joel mentions Chris later because he's going to be talking to Ed. And remember, he's narrating this all to Ed. But uh, it's a very simple one for Chris. You know, he has some trials and tribulations while he's... Uh, dealing with this contractor, and ultimately uh, he surrenders. That was also kind of like a subject that we talked about in the last episode, Charles, with uh, Maurice and little Maurice, Maurice Dutton, Maurice's cousin, who's also named Maurice, Mm -hmm. and how we talked about it almost seems like Maurice Dutton is 
surrendering to a simpler life, but there's a lot of ways to look at it. And here with Chris, he's surrendering to the universe, uh, you know, take every day as it comes. Uh, but let's go back to the beginning of the episode and pick our next plot line, which is Ruthann and Walt. Now here, Joel is again still narrating throughout this sort of storyline, but there are some scenes where Joel, there's at least one scene with Joel and Ruthann. But to start off their storyline, we, we learn that Walt is getting ready to go trapping. He's going to go pick up his traps because it's that time of year. It's either getting too cold or, you know, thawing out or something like that. What do they say? Is it fall or spring? I can't remember what they said. I think it's fall. Yeah. And it's just it about to get to winter. Okay. It's going to get like way too cold yeah. for him to go back out. So he's going to pick up his traps for the season. So he's going to be gone for quite a bit of time. He's got to go... Uh, tend to that. And, um, on his way out, he, he sees Ruthann in the brick and it's really funny. He's like, well, Ruthann, I'm on my way. And she says, oh, well, goodbye, Walt. He says, goodbye, Ruthann. And just, it's just like a very, I didn't do justice to that at all. I butchered that, but it's just very like, uh, it almost feels like AI or something. Uh, like it doesn't seem human. They're just like, very straightforward. Well, Roseanne, I'm on my way. Well, goodbye, Will. Goodbye, Roseanne. And it's humorous if you think about knowing what happens later. We know that Ruthann is really going to miss Walt. And Walt just walks out of the, <laughs> the brick. Right. Uh, we pick up with Ruthann in our store where Maurice heads in to pick up some bag bombs. And I want to say... It's for his cow. Yeah, he said something was wrong with the cow. He thought it was foot and or hoof and mouth disease, um, but it turns out it was just something else, which is good for him. I, I didn't fully follow it, but he's getting the bag balm for the cows. But also, Ruthann didn't follow at all. She's like completely distracted, completely out of it. She's staring at like Kleenex boxes. Mm-hmm. We have the music in this scene is a theme from a summer place. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Did you, what did you think, Charles? Did you guess that, you know, she's missing Walt or what did you think was going on at this oh, point? Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay, like 100%. Got it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're like, she's, I know what's yeah. going on. She's staring at the tissue boxes. She's admiring their floral patterns and pastel colors right there. And, you know, like to her defense, to Ruthann's defense, I definitely have this interaction maybe like every couple of months where I'm just surprised at all the innovations that we have in our ordinary products. <laughs> like, cause time nice. really does keep going forward right here. So like <laughs> one day you'll just go to the supermarket and you'd be like, dang, like mayonnaise comes in like a really good bottle now. <laughs> like I remember <laughs> buying this in jars and stuff. Yeah. It's like, yeah. Who figured that out? Give him a Nobel prize or something. It's like, yeah, just like a really... bunch of small changes and you can't even like, be old man yelling at the clouds because you acknowledge that are like they're better improvements to what they yeah, were no, like yeah. the you know 1990s 2000s or whatever they mastered the craft of the mayonnaise bottle they did it he's like they finally did it you know it just keeps getting better and better um <laughs> but yeah maurice can see that she's completely out of it and distracted so he's just like okay just put it on my tab and because even having a conversation with her it was very difficult for her to stay on track you know i want to say immediately after that well, I mean, the next time we see her, that is, in the in the plot line, she goes to see Joel talking about her mood swings, her problems concentrating. And um, Joel tells her, well, you know, got a clean bill of health. Everything's looking fine. And she admits to him, okay, I know what's wrong. I think she was maybe just hoping it would be something else, but she knew all along. 
and she's almost not going to tell Joel, but she's like, you know, what does it matter if you know? I love Walt. I, I really miss him. I love him in a big way. And I don't know what to do now that he's gone. Right. And she feels that, you know, it's actually kind of funny now that we're talking it out loud, but there is like a lot of conversation of time and reverting to and from it. So what I mean by this is that Ruth Ann has a curious example where she says she's a grown woman, but now she is being reduced to a, a vulnerable schoolgirl. Right. She's being taken back to this stage of her life. Right. And she's, yeah, I think it's kind of cute. She's like nervous about coming on too strong and, uh, you know, what what's she going to do without Walt? And she ends up, uh, this isn't the next scene, but you see her later. She's just like writing poetry on her front porch. Um, but the next scene, I actually have a soundbite for that I'd like to play. It's kind of much of the scene, but I, I just think it's such a funny, a funny scene that I wanted to play it with Ruth Ann's performance here. But she goes to Chris on K-Bear uh, because she has a message that she needs to send over the air. It's actually a message for Walt. His boots came in at the store. Here's what uh, she drops by K-Bear and has this message uh, for Chris to deliver. It's just in, late breaking news from the front. From Ruth Ann Miller all the way out to Walt Kupfer reads, Dear Walt, no, you're- Oh, wait, not dear. I didn't mean to write that. Just make it Walt. And it's not really from me, it's from the store. I got you. Walt, the proprietor of our local- No, no, he knows me. And that sounds so cold the way you put it. Say this, say, Walt, your friend Ruth Ann wants you to know that your new boots came in. Walt, your what, friend- Wait, wait, wait. Wants you to know. That sounds like I'm involved, like, like I care one way or another. Well, I don't want to tell him that. I'm just passing on information, Chris. Oh, never mind. Yeah, this is all live, and it's like I can tell Chris is like, what's going on here? Like, you want me to like, I don't know. It's uh, it's very unprofessional, I guess, for Chris, but I think he's also pretty laid back on the air anyway. But I think it's so funny. She keeps changing the uh the wording there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, really adorable thing. It's going to pay dividends in the future. with will scene with, um, <laughs> with Maurice. But before we get there, there is one scene in between mm-hmm. where she is sitting outside her home. I think that's a very important distinction to make is that she is not inside her home. She is sitting outside of her home right there. She mm. cannot go inside. Just something about it troubles her. Maybe some sort of homestead life, I would assume. Or, you know, it could be innocent reason that she just wants to be outside and catch some sunlight. Mm-hmm. Or whatever the reason is, she's trying to compose some poetry. Uh, the thing that you do whenever, uh, <laughs> you know, you're just, yeah. <laughs> just like that perfect melodramatic thing, which I, I mean, I, I think that's great. I love I this. think that's fantastic. Yeah. People will always be embarrassed about it or shun it or uh, quote unquote find it cringe. I think that there is something very amazing when you're at that stage of your life in which you think that things can be settled with poetry. <laughs> and Ruthann is, you know, here, I don't, I don't remember how old she's supposed to be in the show, but you know, she's returning to that stage in her life where she thinks she needs to be writing a verse, you know, Halling comes to pay Ruthann a visit because it's probably around like lunchtime now. And the store isn't even open. He's like, Ruthann, are you planning on opening the store today? I've got like a bunch of fish. I need some cornmeal so I can fry it up. And she's just, again, 
having trouble concentrating, having trouble engaging in the conversation with Holling. And she's just, you know, explaining that she's been up since like the crack of dawn trying to write poetry now. She's like, what am I even doing? I woke up and I had this this line in my head that I couldn't get out. The heart's too narrow for the little gray sparrow. And, um, you know, it's like one of those classic conversations where Ruthann's talking about one thing, Holling's talking about another. He wants the cornmeal. Can you can you open the store, Ruthann? And it, it doesn't seem like that's going to happen. Yeah, and instead of trying to use poetry to deflect or as a mechanism for her to deliver emotions, she decides to just be as forthcoming and straight as she can. She goes to K-Bear, delivers to Maurice a very simple message of, Dear Walt, there's no dignity in love. Come home. And then she leaves. I love that. Yeah, very simple and says it all. And yeah, um, she she delivers it to Maurice because Chris is uh, out. I mean, obviously he's probably doing some stuff with his uh, contractor. So she tells Maurice, hey, when Chris gets back, tell him to announce this on the radio. And um, it's funny because when she leaves, Maurice uh, is like smiling. He's smirking because he sees that they're in love. Ruth Ann and Walt are in love and it's cute. Right. And the ending <laughs> scene is Walt returning back to Ruth Ann. He makes his way toward her home. Ruth Ann's got some iced tea. Walt is dressed in a full suit. He's got his hair yes. slicked back. And uh, again, yeah, they're not like, they're very tame about it. You know, they're just like, hey, I made some iced tea. You want to come inside? Sounds good. Well, come on in. You know, like they're not, uh, you know, falling all over each other, which reminds me of like the scene in this episode where Joel and Maggie are like jumping to get into bed together. They're older. They just, you know, to me, it's funny because we know on the inside, Ruthann must be so happy to see Walt, you know, but it, you know, it's very uh, measured response when he gets there. And we know that they, we know that despite it sounding so simple, Walt's wearing the suit, and we know Ruthann's been writing this poetry. Like, they're very happy to see each other. Right. And surprisingly, she comes to this without really anyone's aid. Yeah. Like she realizes it's the problem. No one has to point it out to her. And she comes to the conclusion that she just needs to tell Walt the truth. That makes sense, because, like, who would tell Ruth? Like, Ruthann doesn't need to be told that by anyone. She's old enough. Like, if someone were to tell her, well, Ruthann, don't you know you love him? You know? She gets it. I, I like that yeah. she knows this. Well, it can go both ways. Yeah. I, I do appreciate it that it's done in this manner, but I could also buy an argument where someone has to have a heart-to-heart conversation with her and say, Ruthann, you have to be honest with yourself. What do you want? And then it leads to this. But, okay, yeah. <laughs> you know, it could go. I, I think it could work, but I totally buy what you're saying right here. And the entire episode ends with a shot of them going inside their home. Very important right mm. there. <laughs> Very important to the the home theme. Um, and yeah, the music is by Marlene Dietrich. It's the song Falling in Love Again. Very beautiful music here. Yeah, I mean, I think it's time. It's time we go upriver, Charles. It's time we uh, search for Mananash. We, we must retrieve Joel Fleischman or else embed ourselves with him up there. We're going to, we're going to yeah. leave society and go live in Mananash. Well, the thing that makes this one troublesome is that there's, two Joels. There is the Joel from a week ago mm-hmm. and the Joel that's telling the story. And the Joel that's telling the story also, he's got his little thing going on too. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we mentioned that opening soundbite with Maurice and Ed. When Ed does find Joel, you know, we talked a little bit about that. After the um, opening title music, 
Ed is brought to Joel's little shack that he has in Mananash. A couple notes I wrote down. Ed gives Joel a souvenir from that film fest. It's a keychain. And Joel says, thank you, but you know, I don't really carry too many keys nowadays. And uh, Joel has a pipe. I remember in the last episode on the plane, he was very averse to smoking, but he's smoking on a pipe now. And he's made Ed some wild spinach tea. And um, he's like, all right, I'm going to tell you about the week that changed my life. And we get the flashback, Joel and Maggie. This is, I guess, their first night together. Must be like right after full upright position. Joel is like moving in now. He's got a, he's wearing a backwards ball cap, baseball cap. Mm -hmm. I was wondering if they did that because his hair is so wild in the Mananash scenes and maybe they needed some way to tame it. So they just put a cap on it. But I'm not sure. I don't, have we, I kind of feel like we've maybe seen this look before. Like it would make sense in the basketball. Remember he was a basketball coach. Yeah. Have we ever seen Joel with a backwards baseball cap? I don't know. We've definitely seen him with, uh, with a cap in general. In forward. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But I don't know about backwards. Yeah. This may be a look. Also his hair is just much longer this season. So that might be why it looks a little awkward to me is why I'm noticing it. Uh, this is a short little scene where we can see them happy together, but Joel has his own quirks or his own like, uh, neuroses. I don't even know if you would call it that, but he's like, oh, uh, he, he wants to ask her to, you know, clean out the tub when she finishes in the shower because he's a bath person. She's a shower person, you know, like she shaves her legs, uh, and the hairs get in the soap film. I think he says something like that. So, but you know, it's, it's very non-contentious and it's, uh, they're happy to, um, compromise here. Charles, are you a bath person or a shower person? Uh, shower. Yeah. Are I'm, you bath? I'm a shower person, but I mean, yeah. I'll, I'll take a bath, but that's usually for comfort, not for like, I don't bathe to clean. I usually, if I want to soak in a tub or something. I was trained uh, from trained. early age. Yeah. <laughs> and I say that cause it's like a mental conditioning okay. train, but like, uh, whenever I was sick as a child, I would take a bath. Okay. Nice. Yeah. So bath is always meant to me that you are sick. Like a curative. Do you still do it when you're, you're feeling sick? No. <laughs> oh, you don't anymore? Okay. Uh, no, but yeah, that's just how it was when I was a child growing up. That mm -hmm. was the thing is that you would take a bath. I don't, but I don't know why my mother thought that that was the, I guess you felt that like you would yeah. spend, yeah, it was more soothing right there. But <laughs> yeah, the important thing about the scene is that Maggie's trying to make adjustments to her home and right. Joel was trying to work with them. I thought it was really sweet that, you know, there wasn't a lot of conflict about that. There wasn't any yeah. hesitation or second guessing. It's a mature, mature agreement, that conversation. Right. Yeah. And it leads uh, more into the next scene. But before, just, before you go into there, I just wanted to mention, because oh yeah. we mentioned in the last episode where they still call each other Fleischman and O'Connell, even oh, though they right, propose. Right, right. They talk about that in this scene. And so it's like, maybe we should just call each other by our first names. And I love, it's like they attempt to, they try it out, you know? And I like the way each of them say it, the way Maggie says Joel and the way Joel says Maggie. It's funny it's again it's one of those like very specific line readings that it's like i would have never read the line that way but i kind of like it as like a bold choice <laughs> so what do you say joel maggie joel maggie ah <laughs> <laughs> uh, that brings us to the next scene where they're just finishing dinner and 
it's not made very clear to me. They just moved in, right? Like it's it, are, I think are it's they the first agreed? Night. It's the first night. Oh, but are they agreed that they are engaged or no? Oh, that's true. Because at the end of the last episode, they said maybe we just try living together first. So I think I think it's just them just living together with the um understanding that this will lead to engagement. Okay. I think so. Okay. Yeah. That makes more sense. What, what were you gonna say? No, 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 no. I was just um just curious. I was just trying to get that through my mind. I was like, are they actually? Okay. <laughs> but yeah, uh they're living together and they definitely want to do what, what what is that term that people use? I'm trying to come to me. Scoodly pooping. <laughs> yeah. Scoodly like pooping. That's, that's like the this. rated G. That's how we don't get censored on the podcast. <laughs> it's just me censoring us, but yeah, it's like the editor, you know. Um, <laughs> yeah, scoodly pooping. They want to, yeah, this is the scene where like they're running into the bedroom and you can see like Joel like jostling his belt, you know, trying to um, whip his pants off and she hops on top of him. She's like giggling. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> and all of a sudden a gun explodes. What? Yes. <laughs> that, I forgot about this part of this episode because it happens, obviously this happens more and more in the episode, but what a wild, like that's just an unexplained phenomena, right? Because can that happen if you have a loaded gun? Can it just discharge randomly? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, crap. Yeah, like so. A, so that's why you don't uh, keep a loaded gun. Yeah, absolutely. Like, oh, I mean, <laughs> well, I mean, like unprovoked. Can it? Like, if it's just sitting. there? I think it depends on the make and model of the gun. Right. I we're about to receive like so many emails. I'm, <laughs> no, I'm sorry. I'm let sorry. No, like I want to. Yeah, this is what I have been told by people that use guns often is that it depends on the make and model of the gun and the position that it is in. True. So, like, okay. some fluke vibration will ah. just cause the gun to just discharge like that yeah and you know joel um, and maggie are bouncing around on that bed it's just like it kind of yeah if you ask me can a gun discharge if there's literally zero movement uh i would hesitate to guess no because just by, based on like physics but like um i honestly have no idea yeah um well something tells me that there's some supernatural northern exposure stuff going on here anyway because it happens more than once in a lot of interesting ways and now we haven't forgotten right that all of maggie's past boyfriends uh have died you yes. know she's had like i'm surprised that they i don't think they actually even bring that up in this episode i i'm assuming that it's understood the idea that all of maggie's lovers have died in kind of freak accidents i think each of them maybe but they certainly all have died so yeah that's just just a, a really startling sort of button to the end of that scene. It's understood that they do not commence with the scootily poop. What did you call it? Scootily poop? Scootily poop? Scootily poop. They do not commence with that. Uh, for this night, they uh, they shake it off and just go to bed. Right. And we get a very short scene where we return to the present where we can see more of Joel acclimating yeah. <laughs> in the town. He's and somehow in one week has picked up how to uh, tan hides or something. He's doing something yeah, with hides. He's he's softening the hide, he said. Um, but it's funny because, you know, he's narrating this and then we cut to the present as he's narrating it. And he's softening the hide with some tool. And Ed is just like, wait, Dr. Fleshman, what are you doing now? It's like, and he's like, oh, I'm softening the hide, Ed. Isn't that what you do? Yeah, there's a lot of stuff in this episode where Joel is surprised to learn that Ed has not picked up on these uh, indigenous traditions, I guess. I just don't know if that's like 
was that really needed in the episode that already has three plot lines running through it? Right. I, no, yeah. I mean, I also agree. I mean, I I understand what where they're trying to thread it because later Ed is like, maybe I should stay here. But I agree. Mm-hmm. Like, honestly, I mean, we'll get there, but I should say it now. I kind of wish that Ed had advocated more for the townsfolk because, I mean, like, I understand. I get trying to put myself in Joel's shoes. That's what this whole narrative is when Joel's doing the flashback. We need to get into Joel's shoes and figure out what happened to give him this change of mind, you know? And um, that's great. I can sympathize with Joel, but there's also just all the townsfolk, all the friends we made along the way. Like, don't we miss them? Because obviously Maggie, but I mean, like, Ed is a good friend. Like, Chris is your friend. You're leaving them all behind. I wish... I wish Ed at least once had advocated for, you know, the town that Joel's leaving behind. Not just the money and the duty of doctor, but the friends. Right. And I I would say that it it just lacks emotional impact because we didn't really have a whole lot of buildup to it. So, you know, we'll get there when we discuss the final scene. I just think that, like, he really needed, like, an entire episode to build up to this. But... Anyway, I digress. Let's continue, yeah. Continue uh, with the flashbacks. Back, <laughs> yeah, getting back to the flashback. We see Joel and Maggie again on the next night having a drink and just enjoying each other's company. There is a really cool, I presume it's a lamp. Not entirely Ooh, too sure, but it's this. a uh, timestamp 1208, listeners. There is a airplane that has like, the the windows of the airplane are lit up. So I don't know if that's like part of the mechanism of it. it I would describe it as like a, a door weight. Ooh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's just like a little metal sculpture, but it has uh, it's illuminated from inside. Yeah. It's just a little thing that she has as a little decoration on her um, coffee table or something. And yeah, they're drinking. I think it's brandy. They don't say what it is, but Joel says he got it from like his parents last year as like a birthday present or something. They went to St. Thomas or something. I can't remember. It was like one of those island somethings. I don't know, some sort of vacation. Um, so, you know, this is the perfect moment. You know, he was saving it for a good moment. And um, Maggie really enjoys the aroma when all of a sudden, <laughs> when all of a sudden Hayden Keys blasts his gun through the window. <laughs> Hayden, why? I don't, sorry. Yeah. I mean, like we know that guns are just discharging throughout this episode in the vicinity of Maggie and Joel, but I just love that it's Hayden who is, I I can't, I can't hate him for long, you know, but he's always like somehow the villain in a lot of situations. Mm -hmm. Oh, I think there's also a very innocent line that was said in the beginning of the scene where the deadbolt is broken and it's always been broken. Oh yeah. Yeah, she's never been able to lock her home. So it gives a foreboding sense of, (laughs) you know, anything can come in here, which Joel remarks on whenever the bullet comes flying through the window. He says, like, any insect or rodent can come here. Why aren't you being more (laughs) alarmed by this? But Maggie plays it off as more casual. She says, well, think of it the other way. It's, like, actually kind of curious that this would happen twice back to back. Yeah, I mean, like, Joel really can't let this go. He's really startled. And I mean, like, I can understand that. Oh, yeah, definitely. I can get with there. But (laughs) I I also, like, Maggie's just, like, really horny. She's in the mood. Like, she's been trying to get it on, the scootily pooping with Joel. But it's not 
I mean, two nights in a row, it's not working out, but also, yeah, there's just something Joel, Joel is, uh, cannot be in the right headspace for this. The next time we see Joel, well, we do, we mentioned like he, he checks up on Ruthann or she comes in for a checkup. Um, but where it concerns Maggie and Joel, we cut to a scene where Maggie is in a red nightgown in bed and she's waiting for Joel. We can hear him gargling in the bathroom. <laughs> he comes out picking his teeth. He's got like dental floss stuck in his teeth and you know, Maggie's ready for some action. Joel is just like, he's like, Oh, I'm so tired right now. He's, you know, he's not comfortable. You know, I think he's like, you know, like Pavlov's dog. Mm -hmm. It's like that, but for negative, like, you know, he's anytime he gets close to a bed with Maggie, he's afraid that he's going to like duck and cover, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's what happens to him right there. Uh, but third time's the charm. They managed to consummate their relationship. Yeah. He says, it's like, no, it was not my finest hour, but we did. I forgot about that. They, they actually do, uh, this goodly pooping, you know, obviously off camera. Um, and he's telling this all to Ed when some of the Manor Nash people come knocking on the door. It's like three dudes. And, uh, he's like, Oh, I'm sorry, Ed. I promised I'd go spearfishing with these guys. Um, but just, uh, make yourself comfortable. I'll be back in a couple days. What the heck? He's like, yeah, Ed, here's some like jerky and you can have some more of that like disgusting spinach tea or whatever. You're just like, you're trapped here now, Ed. Like, what the heck? I mean, you could have at least, because I was going to say, I'm like, I understand Joel has a commitment. Ed did not announce that he was coming, you know, just shows up. But couldn't Joel have just at least invited Ed to go fishing as well? <laughs> He's going to leave Ed yeah. in the shack. <laughs> I, I mean, it kind of makes sense that he would be able to because there's no way you have established that deep of a bond within one week in the community. <laughs> right. You're also kind of an outsider. Like, yeah. There's no way you couldn't have been like, hey, my friend showed up. Could he also come with us to go do spearfishing? Yeah. And I, I like how he has to tell Joel. I was like, yeah, you ever been spearfishing? It's really, it's like, it will change your life. It's like, Joel, you've only been here for one week. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> I, you, you weren't even like a fishing fella. Yeah. Was he? I don't even know. He he, he caught um, he caught the big fish. I'm trying to remember the name of that now. It's like oh god, it's like Goonie. I think it was Goonie. No, no, no. But it had like a full name. Yeah. Didn't well, it? yeah. It's a crazy name for sure. Yeah, a crazy uh, name. Let me see if I can figure out what it's called though. Goonacadate. That was the long version. All right, my attempt at trying to say it. Um, when we cut back to the story with Joel. Um, actually, I think it's just a commercial break. So what took two days just took us a couple minutes with commercial break. Joel is back cleaning some fish outside when Ed wakes up and and uh, exits Joel's shack. He's like, oh, you're back, Joel. Dr. Fleshman, you're back. And um, yeah, I mean, this is just a scene to show that Joel has gotten some prowess, you know, with this sort of lifestyle. He's able to clean fish and knows how to dry them and Ed is here to help him, but Ed does it wrong. He clearly, like, he cuts off the tail first when Joel's like, what are you doing, Ed? We got we to gotta hang them up on the rack. I'm going to use the tail. Joel also alludes to getting some, like, uh, I think sled dogs, maybe. He's like, I've got to, like, try to build my sled dogs or whatever. Mm -hmm. He's just, it, this is the scene where we kind of see he's kind of becoming more, quote, unquote, native than Ed is, or at least Joel's understanding or relationship with those traditions. It's maybe, I don't even know if I would say stronger. It's just different because I know Ed translated uh, the prisoner of Zenda, right? To Tlingit or he did that. Yeah, yeah, he has. That? So it's like Ed knows how to speak 
sling it or some understanding of it. But he, these, these people here in Mennonash, he, he doesn't understand at all. Right. He has some understanding of his culture. It's a, it's a so different I, culture, I think, I think. Yeah, yeah. I think it's kind of wrong to assume it's like, this is all just one thing and therefore you're missing this and you're missing like the entire thing right there. Right, right. But again, we, we already said, we, <laughs> even if that was even like not the case, I still did not like them <laughs> trying to include this all oh, a little mishmash into there. But yeah, returning back to the past, we see that Joel returns back to his office and he greets Marilyn. It's like her only appearance this episode, I want to say. Yep. Mm-hmm. And Marilyn tells him that Eugene is actually in his office. And it's because, I want to see if I can get this right, from memory. <laughs> yeah, it's a they crazy like live, chain of events. Yeah, he must live like relatively close. Yeah, it's Eugene like just saying, up the hill or something. Yeah, he says just up the hill. My father's gun that was resting on his mantle <laughs> place just discharged. And it was like this old-fashioned <laughs> like musket. So really just blew a hole into Joel's office's window. And Eugene's here fixing it. He's like, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm, I've, it's all fixed. It's all better now. The musket ball shot through. Um, and he, he actually finds where it like lodged itself in Joel's desk. So if Joel had been like sitting at his desk, it would mm-hmm. have been like right by him. And Joel's like, immediately Joel's like, whoa, 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 whoa. what time did that happen? And uh, Eugene's like, huh, 1135. He's like, are you sure? 1135? How, how can you be so certain? And Eugene says, well, Letterman was just introducing Paul Schaffer. So, you know, he kind of has a pretty good idea of the chronology of events here. And I'm to assume that 1135, maybe this is like happening every night with the previous two nights. So something weird's going on. Or actually, I, I don't know if that's ever confirmed, but I do think later it's insinuated through Maggie and Joel's conversation that because it's like, oh, is this a turn on for you, Maggie? Like anytime they get hot and heavy, there's going to be a gun going off. Right. Uh, Maggie kind of discloses that. But there is a short scene before that where yeah. Joel talks about this with her outside her truck. I think that there's a very interesting detail to note in that if you've ever been robbed inside your home uh, or have mm-hmm. just people come inside it and steal things, uh, I believe there is a phenomenon where you no longer feel safe in your own home. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure that feeling doesn't go away until you move to a new location. It's actually one of the most cruel things you can do to another individual because you live there. Like you're dep- you're depriving someone of not just the thing you stole from them, but also of their entire home. And I think that that has something to say for this entire episode where gunshots keep happening in his home or in his office. Mm-hmm. Joel no longer feels safe in his new place. Yeah. And we can, you know, there's a there's a clear line with Chris, Chris's uh, home being destroyed and having to rebuild it. And there's a clear connection because Joel puts his hands in the concrete with Chris. You know, they're sharing that feeling. Um, it's different, but they have a similar situation, perhaps. Um, yeah, this is this is the scene we're talking about. Joel is uh, kind of scared. You know, it's a crazy little theory, but you know, can't you see that this could be a thing? And I wrote down, like, I wish Maggie would at least try to consider, you know, she cares for Joel. He's scared. Maybe she can, like, help ease him up. And I think she does try to do that for a little moment in the dialogue. But then also, I think which the way she understands it, it's just kind of tricky miscommunication because she starts to see it as like, oh, he he's actually just kind of nervous about moving in and about not being able to perform the scootily pooping, you know? So like, she doesn't want to make him feel more uncomfortable about that. 
but I think it's all just miscommunication happening here. Joel's scared. But yeah, he does uh, get over it uh, eventually, I guess with Chris later, but, but sorry, go ahead. He does. But like the scene, so like, this is like the breaking point scene is, uh, so Maggie has to fly off and she says like, we'll talk about it later tonight when I come back home. She comes back home, they start having the talk and it essentially what it boils down to is that Maggie likes this excitement. She doesn't like living in a controlled environment in which nothing can deviate from the path. She she wants to have just this flair. But my problem with this from like a logistical standpoint is that like, I don't know, I kind of feel for Joel. Like three yeah. times? <laughs> yeah. It's a gunshot, man. Come on, you like, you die from that. Yeah, that's what I was saying. It's like, I wish Maggie would see that he's scared and she would, you know, try to make him feel better. You know, she's, she's going around hiding the gun under the couch because she wants it to <laughs> explode when they do it. I mean, they they need to talk, they just need to they just need to have a, a proper conversation about it. You know, really talk about like Maggie's like, well, this kind of turns me on. Maybe we can figure something out that's safer, perhaps, and then maybe we can do something so it's so that Joel feels secure and doesn't feel like he's gonna get shot. You know, anytime he tries to do it. I did. <laughs> I really loved. I think one of my favorite lines of this uh, episode where Joel's like talking about surprises. He says having my car start in the morning or finding a good movie on cable is about as much of a surprise as I like, you know, he doesn't want, he doesn't want guns exploding. He's, he's not a thrill seeker like uh, Maggie may be in this situation. We talked about the scene where Joel comes to see Chris to give him some Xanax and then ultimately puts his hands in the concrete, leaving a mark there. And um, the next time we see Joel Actually, it's sort of like a voiceover too. He says, I'm like, I was ready to tell Maggie that I've seen the light. Like, uh, you know, this is, we were going to like finally patch things up. I had finally found the right mind frame, like surrendering to life and and taking things as they come and uh, just kind of going with the flow there. And he comes back home. Maggie is um, sitting, waiting for him. And uh, you can tell that she's been crying. It's not, it's not great. Like Joel's maybe trying to comfort her for a second and she has a present for him. Uh, he opens the box. It's a cashmere sweater, like a cardigan. And he begins to tell her, you know, he's ready to be more open. He's realized how difficult he can be. And we want to believe as audience members that the moment that he shared with Chris and all the things that have been happening in his life, uh, or I guess in the past week, have really changed him. He says, uh, I think he says to Ed, these people, Chris and Ruthann, they stopped struggling. They opened themselves to whatever life handed them. And yeah, I don't know. I wanted to believe that Joel had seen the light, you know? But um, the truth is, it's like, just because you can identify a problem and even if you can figure out what the solution is, that doesn't mean it's always like a fix, you know? Because Maggie at this point tells Joel that, He's got to go. He can't stay there. Um, she's exhausted by him. It's just uh, not something that is going to be easy for them to try to live together, let alone try to get married. It's not an easy thing. Maybe, she says, I think she says maybe like down the line, we can try again, but we're we're rushing into things, I think. I just, she doesn't say that, but I think just to summarize, she's kind of saying like we're rushing into this maybe. Yeah, I'm not like a huge fan of this. Just because if we're to assume that Joel and Maggie love each other, and right. they must, because otherwise, why would she agree to marry him? Why would either of them agree to marry each other? 
I, I think that it's all too fast. One week. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Yeah, no, no, keep, no, no, keep no. going. Keep going. I just think that like Joel has an earnest conversation with himself where he realizes that you know maybe there is some truth to what Maggie is saying, in which he is too controlling. So he says, "I'm going to work hard on this for myself so that we can have a happy life together." And Maggie's Maggie rejects it. She says, "No, I just I feel it, it is too exhausting, but I." I don't know. I feel that love is like a compromise to some degree whenever you have to come together like this. At the end of the day, you love each other Mm -hmm. and there are small things that you need to fix. And Joel is saying that he's willing to fix on it. Now, I don't know if he's actually going to go through because, you know, we (laughs) didn't actually watch it happen, but he at least identifies the problem and says he's going to work through it. And maybe you could work through it together as a, you know, as a couple. Yeah. We need it. We need a little more of, What's going? We need like another episode with Maggie. Yeah, and it you know, feels like, like Maggie's is, point of view. Right. It feels like it came a little left field because the scene that we're left with before this scene mm-hmm. is Maggie just saying like, "Look, I, I just think it's a coincidence, right, mm-hmm. that these things are happening." She came to this conclusion sometime in between those two. Yeah, she definitely. Some, right. She had her own like come to Jesus moment or whatever. She saw the light, you know, herself. Right. And, and I, 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 that's not saying that it's her version of like her decision is uh, wrong. You know, I, I want to know what brought her to that right. decision, you know? I'm not saying that, like, it, what I just said right there is a categorical right. Yeah. Maggie might have just went through some stuff on her own between yeah. that time that could make us as the audience understand to be like, no, 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 no. Even what Charles just said is true. Maggie just went through this. And that's, mm-hmm. a, you know, that's what counters it. But we're not shown that. And that's what gives me pause about the entire thing of Maggie breaking it up. It just feels like the writers were like, I just want to break them up. Would be a cool move if we got Maggie's story, you know, on the next episode. That would be actually really tight. Um, I don't think that's what happens in the next episode, but um, maybe we'll maybe we'll eventually figure out what's what happened with Maggie. Um, I, you know, I think it's just I think it's just leave it at that. We know that Joel is not gone forever. Rob Moreau, it's not his last credit in Northern Exposure. He's going to be back, so. Um, maybe we'll figure out more with them later down the line. Uh, this may not be the final sayonara between the two. This brings us to Mananash. And we see the, when Joe got there, he, he went to, uh, he, he went to Mananash to deliver a baby. Mm-hmm. And, uh, we see that scene when he's, he steps out of the house, uh, after delivering the baby and he's talking to, I guess the father. And, uh, he's like, yeah, you know, it's just like a little, um, infant rash. That's normal. Don't worry about that. And when Joel gets outside, he takes a look around and he sees uh, the Vista. He's like, you guys, don't you ever want to like get some electricity here or something? Set up some uh, electrical lines. And the father's like, no, shouldn't you get like some running water or something? He's like, no, we don't plan to do that at all. And then uh, I think we also get partly some voiceover when Joel's like, "I I figured it out to find myself. I had to throw off my external trappings of my life and, uh, embrace this and we get the vertigo shot like pushing it on joel yeah that's how are they doing that can you explain that to me one more time yeah let me let me watch it again because i don't remember there's two different ways right we talked about this before you can yeah basically do some combination of zooming in while dollying outward or you dolly in while zooming out so let me see what this might be because one effect makes like the background expand and the other one makes like the background sort of like shrink or narrow but the the crazy thing is joel stays the same size Mm -hmm. you know as the background shifts that's what the vertigo effect does 
Uh, let me try to find it. I just saw it. Uh, 41.33, give or take. It's like the background's getting farther away. Mm-hmm. And Joel is like supposedly getting closer, but he's not changing size. So I would assume, what would that mean? I would assume that you're dollying out and zooming in, maybe, because you're getting further from the background. So if I'm saying this in layman's term, yeah. the dolly means like the camera's on a like a railroad track of sort, right? Right. It's like on a railroad track and uh, pulling backwards. So it dollies back, but the the lens itself is tightening, so it's zooming in. Yeah, so if if we hadn't zoomed in um, while the camera's dollying back, then Joel would also get smaller too. You know, Joel mm-hmm. gets further away. But because we're focused on Joel with the lens, we tighten and we keep him the same size as we pull away and the background gets further away. Hey, I have a quick correction. Once again, I got it wrong. In this episode, the example of the vertigo shot, I think it would actually be the lens zooming out as the camera dollies in. So... As Joel stays the same size, we feel like we're pushing in closer to him as we begin to see more of the background because the lens is widening. That is such a fun That's trick. Cool. In, in my opinion, I'm not as well educated in film as you are, but like to me, when I saw that, I was like, whoa, that's so cool. Why don't more films and television shows do <laughs> yeah. this? Is it because it's like hacky or like trite? It's uh, it's very, it can be very exaggerated. Yeah, right. But I mean, some of the best movies do it. You know, like Jaws does it, Vertigo. I feel like it's still used today by very prestigious directors. Like this is, I think it's cool here, but a, a bad example could be like, and then it hit me. I knew what I had to do. You know, like it's like it dawned on me. You know, he's mm-hmm. the voice. Basically what's happening here is technically like kind of a hacky example, but I think it's cool here. I like it. Yeah. I mean, the subtext is like really everyone gets it, which is what makes it very neat <laughs> yeah. is that like Joel becomes larger. The environment becomes smaller. He is now in the center of the frame. He is now more important. He has the self-actualization in the mm-hmm. story. He's got it, which I think is really cool. But In framing of this story, I think I've talked about this before on the podcast. I've never been a fan of what I like to call the geographic cure. Mm -hmm. It's whenever you feel that your life isn't as up to par as what you would like it to be. And you deem that the problem is where you live. So then you say, oh, it's because of this town that I live in. It's so small or it's too big. I need to go to this different place and then all my problems will be solved. When in actuality... No, like the problems still follow you because obviously (laughs) they're internal. So you always believe that if you go to like Italy, if you go to New York City, if you go move to some random country, you're going to feel much better. And I just, yeah, this is essentially what Joel's saying because he says, define myself, I had to throw off the external trappings of my life. Yeah. Well, it's not just like geographically, but he's like, he's getting rid of his, uh, earthly possessions or whatever. Well, yeah, I mean, like, I, if you want to tie it back to the theme of home, like he's rebuilding his home, like Chris is saying, in order to rebuild your frame of mind, you have to tear it down all the way to the ground, mm-hmm. which again, I don't know if that's well, 100% I, I, true, but it is I, a way to look at it. <laughs> I get it for Ruth Ann and Chris's part of the story because yeah. it was as metaphorical as it was a literal. So, But Chris still has his home to return to. He was just trying mm-hmm. to get through the renovation of it. Ruth Ann just needs that right person to enter into her home. Joel's was the actual just, one in which I disagreed. In which Joel's just suffering of a very bad breakup. <laughs> right. He's, he's like, I got to get out of here. Right yeah. I think, Everything reminds I, yeah, me about I agree, her. I agree with you. Yeah. <laughs> he's having a hard time. And he even tells Ed, he's like, hey, 
tell Maggie, uh, there's not a day that goes by that I don't think about her. And he also says, don't worry, I'm going to be in touch. So Joel will stay in touch with Ed. I didn't mention this, but another thing that Joel says is, um, she gave me more than just a sweater vest that night. She gave me all this. Nothing. She gave me nothing. That's what I need. No phone book, no Game Boy, no pasta maker, TV guide, nowhere to go, nothing to do. Is that what you need? He says that to Ed because Ed is like, I don't know, should I stay here? Should I learn to be a man and ash person? And Joel asks him like, well, ask yourself, like, what, what do you need right now? Um, I wish Ed could have said something like, what about Chris? What about hauling? Like, what about all your friends? They're going to miss you. You know, they, they, you know, can't you, I don't know. I've just, Maggie messed them up bad. You know, Joel's, I mean, I, Joel's I, got I, some heartbreak. Yeah, I get that. Like, I, I get it. You get wrecked <laughs> like an individual. You really got to like, you got to do like a restructuring of yourself. I get that. I'm not trying to downplay Joel's um, emotional well-being at all. Yeah. I just need that like for the entirety of the episode, like we talked about, is just so much being packed in right here. So many things to weave together that I really enjoyed, but overall, not the biggest fan of this episode. Yeah, I'm going to say I don't like the direction that we're going with it, but knowing that this isn't the last time we see Joel, I think this is interesting. I think it's a very interesting episode in the, uh, it's it's not something where I'm like, I don't agree. This, this isn't my Northern exposure. This didn't happen. You know, like this is definitely part of the show. It's definitely part of Joel's plot line. And, um, yeah, I mean, I've already told you, Charles, we're going to see him again. So I wonder really what that's going to be like. So Charles, now's the time where we invite on a guest. And in season six, we're inviting on fans of Northern exposure to talk about Northern exposure, talk about season six and, um, just what's going on you know, with the show now. And this is quite an important episode as you, as we've discussed already. The guest for today is Paul Madavi Bernstein. And now he's been on the podcast before, I believe in season five, when we had asked for listener feedback, like thoughts on season five, favorite episodes. He's written in a lot to our email and has posted a lot on Facebook. Uh, I think he's an active member in Club NX. And also, a radio host on KBR 570. That's kbear570.com. And I believe it's every Sunday morning he has his show, but it might be, uh, he might he might host more than that. But I know he's very active there as uh, Smokey Bernstein. That's Cup of Joe with Smokey Bernstein. It's Saturday, Saturday mornings, um, because Sunday is usually the um, the Club NX watch party. Mm. Um, which, Charles, yeah, we got to get on that at some point. We should make a, uh, we should... <laughs> What do you call that when you, uh, we should crash, <laughs> you know, like oh, crashes, crash but, <laughs> <laughs> nah. um, but no, um, love that community. Love, uh, Paul. Thank you so much for submitting your thoughts. Let's listen to it, Charles, and see what he's got to say. Hello, Lee and Charles. I so appreciate your podcast and thanks for having me on here for one of my favorite episodes of all time, Upriver. This is, uh, Paul Madavi Bernstein, a.k.a. Schmokey Bernstein from K-Bear. Before recording this, I thought it'd be a good idea to take a little hike to cast off the external trappings of my busy mind before recording. <laughs> I still posted a picture on Facebook, so I guess I still am trapped. Um, I love that this is a flashback episode. Not in the cheesy way of the 70s sitcom, but uh, everything came to be. Even though it feels a little rushed, and Joel's story arc had to end a little faster than we hoped for. 
This episode has so much great stuff in it, nevertheless. And I just love the juxtaposition of uh, Ed, who doesn't have all these typical, stereotypical uh, native skills. Well, he's half Indian, but still, you know. Joel is here tanning hides and smoking a pipe, etc. I just love how he brings it all back and how he ends up with, well, here's how I am, with nothing, thanks to Maggie. And when everything coalesces, and at the end, when Ed says his touching goodbye to Joel, their hug, that music is the most touching in the whole series for me. You know, it's an example of the genius of David Schwartz, that's for sure. And it's a different take on the Telekutin scene, who were upriver somewhere. There's a clarinet from New York that's in music, but it's calm. And then, of course, the Indian flute and the integration of going native, um, for the time being anyway. I could totally relate to this. Uh, it wasn't really brought up Jewish in the religious sense, but uh, the native thinking of, you know, of course there are multiple tribes with different beliefs, but general connection to the earth and uh, getting back and really connected to the land really appealed to me and still does. But it's interesting when Joel asks uh, the native in the village, can I live here? He's like, I guess. It's very cool take on it like whatever okay <laughs> so i looked up the word mononash maybe you'll you'll talk about that too being a, a description of mir baba saying uh it's beyond mind it's when the void shows you there's nothing there and then you really see everything which it's a little connection to Mad Men, my favorite episode of Mad Men, The Void. And in case you don't mention it, Baba O'Reilly by The Who is referencing me or Baba and Terry Riley, the minimalist. But me being Mr. Little DJ nerd, I had to share that. And if you ever do uh, get a chance to go to Roslyn, head out uh, further and you can baptize yourself in the waters of Mononash, which uh, us crazy people do each time get in there barefoot even though it's cold it's warm because of your memories of the show and really uh coalescing in the moment it's easy up there it's hard to bring it back to the city or relationships as in joel and maggie calling each other by their first names <laughs> and awkward moments yeah i guess uh the whole gun going off thing was kind of a silly thing but maybe it's that they're mutually desirous incompatibles and the universe is telling them that and then chris's storyline uh he eventually listens to the universe because it keeps telling him okay you think you're gonna go to ant but maybe you're still a grasshopper or maybe you're just half ant, half grasshopper <laughs> um but then he surrenders and he and joel in the here and now with their imprints an imprint i love that idea because it's physically not there, but it's there. And uh, as I get older, I think my favorite story arc is Ruth Ann and Walt. Because there is no dignity in love. They surrender to the universe. Well, she surrenders to the universe. I think he was ready. She finally surrenders. <laughs> oh, the heart's too narrow for the little gray sparrow. That um, dialogue there, uh, that script... I ended up writing a song based on it. I basically took some of the words. I should record it for Valentine's Day. Maybe I'll finally do that. But yeah, and the Marlene Dietrich tune. Yeah, I can't help it. <laughs> and if you think about it, really, um, it's connected to Joel and his journey because they are truly in the moment 
just in their elderly years, which is so great for TV to see that, you know, uh, relationship of elderly people like that. So sweet. All right, I'm going to share the lyrics that I wrote. The morning sun slips through my curtain. The following rhyme is left uncertain. Tickled by the flirtin', but done with all the hurtin'. Heart palpitations soon won't be working. The heart's too narrow for the little gray sparrow. The heart's too narrow for you and me. The heart's too narrow for the little gray sparrow. The heart's too narrow, it won't let me be. I'm just no good without you now. So now I give up and give in somehow. Lord knows that I've tried, but there's no escaping. Let fate do what it will, there is no debating. The heart's too narrow for the little gray sparrow. The heart's too narrow for you and me. The heart's too narrow for the little gray sparrow. The heart's too narrow. It won't let me be. It won't let me be. So thanks for letting me be here and look forward to hearing your insights as usual. May there be a summer place in everybody's winter heart. Okay, bye. Peace out. Okay, that was Paul's thoughts on Upriver. And wow, yeah, Charles, we really dropped the ball. We did not at all research Menonash. I thought it was just an invented name for because it is a fictional town. But it's so interesting that it actually refers to uh, something by Mir Baba, I think is how Paul describes it. Beyond mine, the void shows you there's nothing there, and then you really see everything. I uh, Yeah, that went straight over my head, but uh, it's obvious that the writers intended this. Yeah, uh, just like you. I just assumed <laughs> it was a made-up name because I, I don't yeah. know. I was just like, yeah. It's a good name. That's why I was like, wow, they really named this town really well. But it turns out it's a... <laughs> <laughs> it's a bona fide real thing right there. Uh, well, props to Paul for also composing and writing the lyrics. Yeah. The heart's too narrow for the little gray sparrow. I remember, I mean, when I heard the line in the episode, I just thought is yeah. I mean, I could, it's the kind of thing, I don't know, has that ever happened to you, Charles, where you just wake up with a line in your head and it doesn't make any sense, but you're like, but it sounds good. Oh, like a hundred percent. Like all, the, yeah. like whenever I write now, <laughs> I find that oftentimes, uh, maybe it's because I want to beat the system, like the system being uh, chat GPT. So I'm just like, you gotta, you gotta just say like <laughs> random stuff that like the machine would never do. Cause otherwise you, you're just, like, you're copyable. Yeah. But, uh, no, sometimes I'll come across some, like, I think I wrote just recently, I read a line. It's like, yeah, it's like colored by a uh, living tone. And I had to think about that. And I was like, does that even make sense? I was like, whatever, <laughs> just, just publish it. It doesn't matter. Living tone kind of makes sense. No, I love those kinds of lines where it's like, what is it even saying? But it's more like, you know, understanding is overrated. You know, it's just, that, like, yeah, that, I mean, honestly, that happens to me like all the time. Like I'll write something and it sounds really good in my head and I'll publish it. <laughs> like somebody will be like in the comments, be like, what the f did you mean by this? <laughs> it's like, this is, I cannot comprehend what it, this doesn't mean anything. Um, yeah, also props to Paul. Something we didn't really touch on a whole lot, or maybe not at all, Charles, is the score in this episode. And something that I was unaware of is that the music here is the same, or it's like a similar interpretation of that theme that plays in, um, that would have been the body in question, the, where the Telekutans come and take the body. So it's the same theme, I guess, as that Telekutans music, but it's kind of morphed in this episode in its own way. And that song also is featured on 
I want to say it's the uh, more music from Northern Exposure CD. It could be the first one or maybe the second one. So like this is a, a David Schwartz original piece that I think um, we had asked online, Charles, what people's favorite David Schwartz compositions were for the show. And Paul had written in that it was the Telekutens theme, but from this episode. Because mm-hmm. I think as Paul describes in his comments here, it's got like other instruments, like maybe some flute, maybe some clarinet kind of mixed in as well for this episode. It's really, really great stuff. Yeah, I thought it was a really great pickup from him observing the clarinet. It's a little bit more mellowed right there, mm-hmm. but still hinting at Joel's heritage right there. Another thing that Paul had mentioned, there's a lot of just little thoughts here and there that I really liked, but one that really stuck with me was the idea of the, the scene with Joel and Chris when they imprint their hands into the concrete, that the idea of an imprint, it's a representation of something that's not there. So like an imprint mm. is there because it is, you know, we see it, but it's the form of something that's missing. You know, your hands are no longer there anymore. Um, I don't know exactly how you could tie that. There's a lot, there's a million different ways, you know, like there's nothing in Mananash and that's why Joel, there's like nothing there, but I don't know. There's a, there's a lot of ideas there. Yeah. Did you ever do that as a little kid? Put your, uh, put your hands on the concrete? Um, like, are you, are you saying like in a, uh, delinquent way? Like, I don't think I ever did it on drying concrete where like I wasn't supposed to, if it was like roped off. But I do think, no, there was like a, I've done it in like art classes or something where we did that, where we made some sort of artwork with uh, cement blocks or concrete blocks where we would press our hands in. I actually, I I looked into it. I was wondering if there was actually any danger. And it turns out there is to an extent. What? (laughs) Yeah. So there's something called cement burn, which is also sometimes called concrete burns. And how it works is that whenever wet cement contacts your skin, the chemicals react to the water molecules in your Mm. skin. So this reaction produces alkaline molecules that break down your skin tissue. So the longer cement stays in contact with your skin, the worse the sperm becomes. Now, does this actually affect people that do what Joel and Chris just did? No. Only if you're like working it with your hands a lot. Yeah. You need to wear gloves if you're going to. It's got some sort of, I guess, cement. You're saying cement is like the binder. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's got some sort of caustic properties. You yeah. don't want to be touching that with your hands too much. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, be very careful about that if you're really dabbling in cement. <laughs> Let's see. Paul also says that he loves the flashback element. And I was saying, yeah, I really liked that. It kind of, I mean, it would have been a little weird, but maybe cool if we had a couple episodes where Joel, I don't know why I liked that idea in my head. Multiple flashback episodes where Joel's narrating. Uh, but Paul does acknowledge that it is a little bit rushed. You know, we we rush to the end of Joel's story arc a little faster than we maybe hoped for. But, you know, there there are a lot of great moments that Paul really attached to. And I'm really glad that this is one of his favorite episodes because, yeah, I mean, there's just like, I, we already said, Charles, there's so many things that we kind of dropped the ball on we didn't even talk about. No, I mean, well, this is like the great glamorous thing about this is that, and I love it when whenever this happens, is whenever someone that loves something and you don't love it yourself, and then they explain to you, 
in concise terms of like why it works for them, why it speaks to them. And you're like, oh, okay. Yeah, no, I totally didn't see it from your perspective and it makes sense from that perspective. Yeah, it like bumps up a few points on the scale for me. Yeah. <laughs> I think I did that. I remember distinctly that I did that to you on a glass menagerie from Tennessee yeah. Williams because mm-hmm. I loved it and I remember talking to you and you were like eh, I don't really feel it man and like <laughs> I had to like go through like the whole nine yards is it nine yards <laughs> yeah yeah that's the expression and then you were like you came around you're like I, I can see why it's why it's good and I'm glad like the more I was listening to Paul talk about this episode I was like yeah no no I can see why this is good <laughs> Yeah, no, it's all, we said this before, it's only more enriching to share the show with someone else and to hear their thoughts. And that's what's great about a community of fans for Northern Exposure. And uh, just the last couple thing I wanted to talk about uh, that Paul pointed out was, uh, oh, one thing, the way that the guns keep going off, maybe that's, he, he suggests, maybe that's the universe's way of warning Joel and Maggie that their love is dangerous or it's not going to work out, perhaps. Uh, and the, the, when Joel asks the Mananash man, can I live here? And his response is like, I guess, I mean, sure. Like whatever. <laughs> like, um, that's just kind of such a funny interaction. I f- we forgot to talk about that earlier. And finally, I like Paul's sign off there. May there be a summer place in everyone's winter heart. Thanks, Paul. It's, uh, easy to tell just from, uh, the way you talk about this episode that it's a, it's a very important one for you. So thanks for coming on sharing your thoughts. We really loved it. And uh, Charles, that's going to be it for Upriver. And I already told you, it's not the end for Joel. We'll see him eventually at some point. The next episode is going to be Sons of the Tundra. It's the ninth episode, so we're going to have a little break. But um, I guess I can sort of tease that there's going to be a bonus episode next week. So we won't be going uh, completely silent. But we won't be returning to Northern Exposure for a couple weeks, uh, at which point we're going to be talking about Sons of the Tundra. And this is another case, Charles, where you haven't yet watched this episode. Do you have any ideas what Sons of the Tundra could uh, um, portend? Well, hang on. First of all, is next week's episode the one that I think it is that we just recorded? Yes, Charles. We recorded uh, a bonus episode. Not not an episode of Northern Exposure, but a bonus uh, piece of content for the main feed. Oh, that one's so good. I'm so excited to share that one <laughs> yes, with uh, yeah. with the listeners. But for Sons of Tundra, Sons of the Tundra. Sons of the Tundra. S-O-N-S. Sons. Ah, uh, gosh. And whenever you, you, you chain together the word Sons of, it's like your, your mind wants to autocomplete anarchy. He wants to get Sons of Anarchy, that, that <laughs> television show for the 2010s. Hey, I'm pretty sure, I mean, I can kind of, this is not exactly a spoiler because I'm pretty sure the phrase Sons of the Tundra has been mentioned at least twice in Northern Exposure so far. Really? Do you remember it? Is it, oh gosh, is it that episode where Ruth Ann starts to go on the bike? She like... <laughs> Oh, no, that one's so awesome when she goes, that's Fish Story as well, where she joins a biker gang. Yeah, I think the, yeah, yeah, The Diablos. Oh, that's um, it. So, Sons of the Tundra, uh, we haven't really talked about it. It's only been talked about in passing, but it seems to be some sort of like, um, like what would a good example be? Like the Freemasons or something, or like uh, the Shriners Club, or some sort of like, uh, it's not, not, not necessarily like secret society, though. I don't know. They haven't really talked about what it is exactly. Mm. They've just mentioned it in past. Oh, I think they've said like, this is the third annual Sons of the Tundra blood drive or something. I don't know if it was, but 
things oh, like that. Oh, I get what you mean. So it's like a sponsored organization that we have not yet seen, but has been their presence has been palpable throughout the town right. of Sicily. That is really interesting. Then, um, yeah, I'm gonna guess it's some sort of a uh, some sort of organization that finally shows itself. Gets a little. <laughs> Get us a little exploration into there. All right. Well, we're going to definitely learn more about the Sons of the Tundra when we get back. Once again, next week is going to be a bonus episode in the main feed. And uh, we'll probably take another week off to start working on the next block of episodes. But Charles, I'll see you next time. All right. I'll see you next time. Northern Overexposure Podcast is edited by me. Our theme music was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to B-Ball Y'all for the podcast artwork. And thanks to Paul for being our guest. If you'd like to write in, you can reach us at northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com, at northernoverpod on Twitter. And if you like the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash northernoverexposurepodcast. And of course, thank you for listening.